Welcome to the Keen and Yoga Podcast. A democratic endeavour to bring you more perspectives on life and practice from a diverse number of voices and backgrounds. Inclusivity is our aim and polemics and dogma are our combatants, our enemies. <clears throat> we are not for a profit, so in not so many words, if you fancy donating, you're welcome to head over to keenonyoga.com podcasts. Any support is appreciated and also please give freely as to feedback, advice, ideas, guests. Today's guest on that note is Zoe DePero, otherwise known as the unruly aesthetic, or as my wife thought she was called, the angry Ashtangi, which is not the case. She's not called that. <laughs> because it doesn't really present Zoe in the correct light, really. For, for like me, she loves the Ashtanga method, aspects of tradition here. And we both reminisce fondly to degrees about our time in Mysore. So it's simply that we both meet to democratise the progress and process of teaching Ashtanga and to disband many unhelpful myths cultivated actually in Mysore and not by Shirachi, but by teachers going there. Many of those are actually around protectionism and fear of imposter syndrome back home. Money. However, it remains to be stressed that we are neither of us anti-Mysore, neither of us are anti-Mysore. Instead, what we're interested in promoting is a more nuanced picture of the application of yoga. Because we love it. One, indeed, that can actually be found in Mysore itself. But somehow it ends up being lost in translation when teachers leave and go back home to their own charlas and they end up teaching most literally and pedagogically a most authoritarian kind of Ashtanga yoga that is elitist and exclusive and harmful, not only physically and emotionally, and is not necessarily found originally in Mysore. Anyway, as always, it was an open discussion, fairly unplanned, so please forgive us if we're not always as clear as we might like to be, but it's spontaneous and free. And nevertheless, I hope you get the gist of what we're saying, what we're both working for in the public, uh, public uh, domain for Ashtanga Yoga as a more pragmatic and approachable practice for all people, all people not only incredibly able-bodied or those with time and money to go to Mysore, but all those people in full-time work who don't come in the best of health, mothers struggling to bring up kids and adjust to practice, everyone. Anyway, welcome Zoe to the Kingdom Yoga Podcast. It's great to have you here. So welcome, Zoe, to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. Thanks Hi. for yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> We're both thankful about being together, and um, you know, um, I've really uh, enjoyed your irreverential, somewhat Instagram over these last years, and. <laughs> Yeah, it's taken a while to get around to you, but I'm really pleased that we're in, in that metaphorical room together now. Um, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I, you know, I just had the same connection with you and and your posts on Facebook. I'm not sure how we became friends. I'm sure I friended you years and years ago, um, and I've I've loved your posts and I've loved how Thank you, you seem to be reflecting similar ideas. That's really that's really nice to hear. Um, yeah, I think Facebook. Um, okay, so uh, what? I mean, let's just start at the start, as I always do. I mean, like you know, for people that don't know you, I mean, they know your posts. What, what was your background with yoga and, and um, Ashtanga yoga? I suppose, like, can you give a little bit of a potted, a small potted history of how you got into it and stuff, and maybe who was your, who were your early teachers, and just just to give an idea about yourself. 
Yeah, I um, I started practicing yoga in college and went to India when I graduated from college because I didn't uh, pursue a line of study that provided any work opportunities. What did so, you do? Uh, I studied history and religion at UVA. Uh, yeah, I did philosophy, um, same. Yeah, Just, so... Uh, yeah. After school, I went to India and um, traveled a bit through the Integral Yoga Organization, which has their main ashram um, not far from where I live in Virginia. So I uh, spent a lot of time there and with those teachers studying Integral Yoga for a few years. And it's a wonderful, kind-hearted, gentle practice. Um, and through that, I made friends who exposed me to other practices. I practiced with Dharma Mitra in New York for a while mm-hmm. um, and then was exposed to Ashtanga and very early on did a workshop with Kino McGregor, who mm-hmm. I think, as is true for, for many people, very much inspired me towards the practice. I was just practicing by myself Um at the time, because there wasn't any Ashtanga in the city where I was living, and I would travel uh, to see Kino and then eventually Tim. Um, and after about a year and a half of practice, I decided to go to Mysore. So I started going to Mysore pretty early yeah. on it, yeah, in my Ashtanga career. <laughs> and that, that is early, actually. And, and what did you think about it? Did your opinions change towards Mysore? What was your original thoughts? Um, I was at a weird stage in the Ashtanga, uh, Mysore community. I was, went the first year that you could register online. So I was kind of that, that first generation of people who could have some expectations about their experience. Like we knew we were going to be able to get in. I think my second or third year, like we were arranging apartments before we arrived Right. So it was kind of less of, of an adventure than what I had been um, kind of hoping for, I think. But there's also, you know, there's comfort in that knowing that it's it's not a complete crapshoot. You're not going to mm. spend thousands of dollars on this plane ticket and then get turned away. Um, so I I think there's some some conflict there in that it. I loved the experience of it and I loved immersing myself in this group of people who were also so excited to be there, but it wasn't the, the adventure that, you know, that, that people wrote about in their memoirs or that you heard about when you went and talked to to these big teachers about their experiences of going to Mysore. It wasn't, it was magical in its own way, but it wasn't mystical. Mm. that mm. distinction makes sense. Yeah, I think at a certain point, Mysore became like, a, you know, a kind of like a college situation, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not like a really a kind of adventure as such. But what did you think of the teaching itself? I mean, like, because I've got down here um, in my questions, have you always felt unru- unruly? I can't say that word really, unruly 
Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, like, because your posts are quite anarchic and they're quite anti-authoritarian. I've been called that as well, you know, like, I mean, many people have interviewed me for podcasts. They're oh, you're anti-Mysore, you're anti-authoritarian. And I say, well, no, that's actually not quite true. Like, that's, you know, a bit polarised. And I don't feel like that. And I had a great, you know, I still have respect, a lot of respect for, for Shirachi um, and still love that time there and, and got a lot out of it, I suppose. Um well, yeah, what are your feelings about that? Oh, but I'm, 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 I'm mixed, you know, like I'm not, you know, I haven't dropped the Kool-Aid. That, that, that's, that's there. <laughs> you know? I think we're very, very similar in that. I, uh, I've just discussed a little bit in my Instagram, but I'm a highly anxious person. Um, and the, the practice and the system of, of deference to a teacher and, you know, strict adherence to the series was very soothing for me because I right. didn't have to make decisions for myself because I could just do what I was told and follow along. And in that first workshop um, that I took, Kino said that, you know, you just take the time you need to take and you follow it methodically and you kind of don't worry about the things that are not in front of you to work on. And that was so comforting to hmm. me. So the idea that I could go to this place and there are all these people who agree that, yes, we follow these rules and this person makes decisions for us and we just go through it. That was very, very comforting, um, especially at a time in my life. I, w- I guess I was in my like mid to late 20s when I really didn't know what I was doing and in my life. And I didn't have a lot of of structure. And mm-hmm. that was was very soothing. So I, I definitely subscribed to the do as you're told um, mindset. and. As I practice, the longer I practice, I, I continued to practice Okino and Tim for years. Um, for most of the time that I was going to Mysore, they were really wonderful mentors to me. Um, but then there was the conflict of, is Sharat my teacher? Does he make decisions for my practice? Or is Kino my teacher? Or is Tim my teacher? And it took eight or nine years for me to realize that Really, and this this sounds a little harsh on all three of them, and I don't I don't mean it I don't mean it personally. I They're not, not listening anyway. None of them are listening. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> don't worry well, about it. People who love them very much, are probably, probably. Probably yes, yes. But that, that's none of true. them were actually taking on the responsibility of being my teacher. Right. Like Interesting. None of them. I was willing to give that to them. But they were not taking that on. Like Sharat was was giving me guidelines, and that was wonderful. And he took me on. Um, you know, once I was authorized, he he had me assist him a handful of times, and he actually mm-hmm. gave me a lot of really great direct instruction for helping people progress. I feel very fortunate that. He, he did have a lot of very personal interaction with me, um, but it still wasn't like here is your practice and here's why I'm making these decisions. And once I started mm. going to Mysore a lot, Kino backed way off of making decisions for my practice because she said, Sharat's your teacher now. Um, and Tim was always really great uh, and always made time to like dialogue about choices and progress and why we could go one way or go another. But it, it always kind of boiled back to like, I had to just decide what to do and, and who's, 
boundaries to accept. And that was so hard. It was so hard. And I felt so alone. And it, the whole thing kind of backfired Mm. because I, I had backed myself into this corner where I needed someone to tell me what Mm. to do. And I got I suppose can I just interject, what did you think you were going to get? With it, following these rules, I mean, because I did it as well. I mean, and I saw you there, and what you know, I think we met, and um, and we were both, you know, kind of like following the rules that I, you know, I followed them meticulously for many years because of an anxiety disorder that I developed uh, in the early twenties as well, actually, and um, it felt very comforting and soothing. But when I reflect back, I kind of think, well, you know, like I came to yoga, like you know, like we, you know, with the full with the full idea of the full package, right? Like self understanding and, and that kind of thing. And then, as soon enough, it became a kind of comfort blanket where if I just followed the rules and kind of did it every day, did it every day in the way that was prescribed to do it, I kind of felt like comforted, I suppose, that I'd done Absolutely. what I ought, what I ought to be doing and that I'd made yes. the right choices with my day or something like that. But it didn't really reflect as to what those, that, that, that kind of rather rigid, not only the rigid practice, but the rigid lifestyle around it um, was actually aimed at, right? And, and what the teacher, <laughs> yeah. right, you know, and what the teacher, whoever that was, was, um, was aiming for me, you know, in, on my behalf, right? <laughs> like, you know? Um, yeah. What, what were we thinking? Like, yeah. it, it, and it, it's funny because I don't think I was. I don't think... I I had hoped that I would progress in the practice and, you know, progress towards authority to the point that I would be able to teach and support myself financially through teaching. That's kind of right, the extent right. of it. Mm-hmm. I, I have been teaching um, yoga in general if not Mm -hmm. specifically ashtanga and that was like i said kind of the only marketable skill i had so for me a lot of it was i liked the practice i took a great deal of comfort in the practice Mm. if i just surrender wholly to what i'm told this method is then if i dedicate myself in the right way then mm-hmm. I will be able to teach and people will come and it will work out. This sort of this sort of idea of like if I create the right yoga karma, then the world it also will sat, yeah, 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 yeah. It's also kind of a bit of like a pyramid selling, really, isn't it? Oh, well, if you yeah. don't, it's, you, it's you donate, yeah. Marketing. yeah, yeah, yeah. You donate yeah. to me, you know, like, and, uh-huh. and then you'll get something down the line, right? Like, yeah. which was kind of a little bit talking about me rather cynically before the podcast that there is, you know, I think earlier on in the days, like we go with mixed intentions, probably a lot of, most of us to my, so a lot of us being teachers and certainly back in the time I was doing it, I don't think it was ever different from the start really that there was this understanding that yes, it was a livelihood. You could make a living out of it. Right. And, uh, and when you're in my sort, you know, you pursued it accordingly as a, you know, there was a lot of pushing, a lot of jostling, a lot of, trying to get next posture and advancement and, you know, so you could claim you know, authorization and all this stuff. And um, 
Yeah. And that that's only escalated. You know, it, I think it used to be like, oh, if you went to Mysore, then you're something of an authority. And then it was, oh, if you go to Mysore this mm, many times, mm, mm. then you get it's like having It's like having a college degree, isn't it? It used to be like, well, you have a bachelor's, that's all right. Now it's like, well, no, that, you know, that's just a start. You know, like, you know, you need to have a master's and the particular training and what you're doing. Because it's just like, um, you know, it, it's it's market forces on, on yoga, yeah. you know, the Columbia. Yeah. As capitalism amps up, it's like people have to be more and more pushy with it, I suppose. Um, I was going to ask I, you, I are you teaching it. now? No. I did. No, you're not. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. No, I had a small shala uh, mm. that I closed in 2000, the end of 2016. Um, I went to the summer course that, that Trot did. That was my last time in Mysore and came back kind of realizing the stuff I've been talking about on my Instagram Mm. and um, decided to close my shala for just personal reasons at home, but also because I was recognizing all of the dangers of teaching in this method. Like if you are not, if you are not really straight with yourself and your relationship to your practice, your relationship to the the system and the people who have been authority figures for you, then there's so much danger in terms of how you will influence other people's relationships to their practices as a teacher. And I was not confident that I wouldn't carry my own, not to be flippant, but not carry my own trauma around Mm-hmm. the community and and the system and pass it mm-hmm. on to other people how how would what is the danger and how would you do that just to be more specific maybe yeah i i think so what do you see are the dangers in the community if we can nail it down a little so, bit more. so you you and i were i think we're good examples of people who subscribe to the authority to comfort in the um the structure and the prescribed discipline and it helped us and Mm. it soothed us. And over time we grew out of that and grew into some self-awareness and some autonomy and, and now are able to recognize like, okay, this, I can't just let someone else or this system kind of make all my choices for me. But having subscribed to that for so long, I have, really good, healthy patterns for making decisions for myself. And you you kind of grow into the role of being your own guide. And it takes time and it takes, you know, you have to kind of defer for a long time to, to recognize, let the pendulum swing of like, it doesn't really work at this end and it doesn't really work at that mm. end, but here is the healthy middle ground. Um, but I think, People are often teaching, especially with this, you know, three trips to Mysore and you get your box checked and you're a teacher. You know, for me, my third trip, I've been practicing for four years and I was fully authorized to teach. That's crazy. And I understand being on the other side of the 10 year mark. I understand why I always heard you shouldn't teach until you've practiced for 10 years, because the authority of being the person making the decisions, the the high of having people 
listen to you and do what you tell them and stay within the parameters that you set for them mm. is dangerous. It's dangerous. Right. Do you think so? Do you, I mean, because the way I... I mean, I hear a lot of this, and I suppose because I haven't taught from that, even when I was in the kind of fold, as it were, I wasn't so prescriptive, I guess. Mm-hmm. But do you think, I mean, how, do you think it really can have a detrimental aspect on, on people's emotional kind of well-being, right? In terms of how you, because I mean, you just, I mean, essentially, if you're a teacher, unless you get over above yourself, you're just teaching asana. Like, do you think that that has a, that has a graver implication for people's lives? I mean, did you feel the sufferance? Gently, you know, yourself. From- I, so I was never, um, I was never a super established teacher. I didn't, I had a small shala with a very, very small program. I, and I traveled a lot and I covered other people's programs. So I didn't have my own program consistently for a long period of time. Um, so I always was teaching from a place of deferring to someone else's choices, Mm. um, which was very beneficial developmentally for me as a teacher to be able to say, like, look at a student and say, this is the choice I would make, but someone else has made this choice for them, you know, and then dialoguing with the student and saying, this is the choice your teacher made. It's valuable for these reasons. This is the choice I would make. And it's valuable for these reasons. And then you have to decide for yourself. So that is how I developed as a teacher. Very, very verbal. (laughs) hyper, hyper communicating about the pros and cons of different ways to progress and asking the student to consider for themselves and then decide which course they want to follow and then ask them to be consistent with that decision for a prearranged length of time. And it took like I said, years and years for me to be able to turn that around on myself and and tell myself, like, wait, these things that you're mm. asking of these students, you are not doing yourself. Um, and so so for me, my situation was different because I was never really I never got to be the sole authority figure. Um, but I did see other people or I would teach in a community and there would be another teacher somewhere who is treating their students in a very dictatorial this is how you progress you stop there you show up every day why weren't you here this is what discipline this is what dedication looks like and I saw that it was hurting people it's just ridiculous. Let me just stop you there. This is just a ridiculous mentality, I have to say. And I don't know where it came from, I, and, and, but it is so endemic. I, don't, I hope it's lessening in the Ashtanga world now. This, this kind of proving your colours by, you know, uh, you know, I get up at one o'clock. No, I get up at, I don't even right. sleep. I don't sleep. I sleep in a coffin and I just get I up. I, you know, I don't even sleep at all. And I don't just, sleep. I don't yeah, eat. I don't. Yeah, I don't have yeah, a life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't talk to other. People. Therefore, I'm valid as a yoga teacher. What a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. do, what, what, you know, before we go on on this vein, I mean, what, what's the value that you've got out of? I mean, you still the uh, unruly ascetic. What is the value of asceticism or of keeping? You know, what do you find as helpful? Because I don't want to 
piss all over tradition because I got a lot out of the idea of tradition, even if the idea of parampara isn't really real. Um, and, <laughs> you know, the, there was something in the symbolism of this whole thing and, uh, and that it had some background and history and it wasn't made up by someone like a couple of three years ago, you know, um, whilst on holiday in Ibiza. Um, you know, high on drugs, and uh, you know, like, you know, it had some resonance to me, and it kept me at it, and it kept me convinced. I think one thing it kept me convinced, um, and 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 that I needed because I think doubt and self doubt, and you get on the mat in the morning, you just think that's not right, you know, like oh, what am I doing, you know, like you have this sequence, yeah. you have this system, yeah, it has an authority. There's there's many people for many years that have done it, and 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 it gets you through day by day, you know. That that anyway, yeah. that's my feeling of it, you know. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a very difficult discussion because discipline is so important and dedication and a willingness to sacrifice ease and comfort for the sake of long-term stability mm. is really... Or just, or just lifestyle choices. I'm not doing this because I want to get up in the morning. You know, I'm not yeah. having a glass of wine because that's going to affect my yeah. practice or, you know... Yeah. And I think, I think it's one of those things you, we benefit so much from those early years where we do, you know, you said drink the Kool-Aid, which is an incredibly um, morbid reference. So I mean it very flippantly, not literally, but um, <laughs> I think those early years where we're really subscribing to the surrender idea is so beneficial because because then you have the experience to go back to of of it does work if you if you make yourself show up and you sacrifice and you restrict and you you sh to prioritize being there on your mat and and putting so much energy into it it changes you and I think there are phases of life for that, that if you approach the practice at a time in your life, you know, like I did when you're in your 20s and you have no family or job or responsibilities and you can do that, that's really wonderful because then as life has to ebb and flow and you want to let other things in that hinder your ability to restrict for the sake of, of asana progress, um, then you're better equipped to be able to, to judge and say, is it worth it? If I make this choice and I go down this path, am I centered enough in my practice of yoga that I will continue to live my practice if I do less asana and I do, I have less time on my mat. Is my, my practice in my heart and my mind established enough that I will be okay mm. if I don't have mm. as much time? Um, I think everyone has, in every, in every career, there's a kind of imposter syndrome. And unfortunately, the imposter syndrome here is wrapped up very much with level of ability in the most ostensible progression in asana, right? Like yeah. basically like how physically good you are, which is such a shame because that doesn't obviously, you know, we can sit here saying that doesn't make a good teacher, but the, you know, when you're getting into it, you think, well, I want my teacher to be the best 
you know, like even as a student, I think I I wanted yeah. to wonder, I wanted to know my teacher was really good at yoga posi- positions, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, are you kidding? Only, Dino was my first teacher. Yeah, yeah, and so I yeah, but also amongst the community, there's this feeling of like, you know, oh, how far this person got, so they're that good a teacher, you know, and yeah. um, I suppose also tying into that is the idea of that there's a kind of established or or kind of closely kept clique around the teachings, which I think you've talked about in your post a little bit. Yeah, and and it, it ties back to to the idea of the the yoga in your life versus the yoga on your mat. And I I have been wondering, and I've I've heard this this conversation happening around me for a long time. Um, but I wonder sometimes if if the yoga on the mat is very, very successful and you get a lot of positive reinforcement for the yoga on the mat, if that sometimes hinders the yoga in your life. Like you talked about in a post recently where mm. you were saying that you work on yourself so much and you're not really working outward because you're working inward. And I, I'm wondering if there are, are people out there who the, the yoga on their mat is not as impressive so the yoga they had to do in their heart and their mind in order to persist in the yoga on their mat is well established and consistent and genuine and they're going out into their lives and they are living this yoga because they have not had the ego mm, reinforcement mm. or the positive feedback for the yoga on their mat yeah. so they they are, you know, learning these deeper lessons of yeah. self-acceptance and perseverance. Mm-hmm. I think, and- yeah, it's a, it's a great cul-de-sac to go down in this. If you have ability, then it seems adequate. Like you've done your practice and you've done so much, right? Like, and you feel like, God, that's, that's all I need to do in the day. You know, like it's so hard. It's so physically hard. And yes, you get accolade from it, you know, like from peers and stuff. And you just think, well, that's all I need to do then, right? So it's a bit, yeah. inherently yeah. very very essentially lazy like you know because he's well, you know then you could just let everything else go because that's the yoga right because it was so hard and so all involving um which is and, and you just and literally you're wrung out the other thing is like the level of dynamism that the ashtanga and and it wasn't originally like that as well the the early teachers didn't have this experience of being pushed quite so hard all the time i think um but now the, the the bar is set so high that the level of dynamism dynamism expected, it just leaves people with no other energy for anything else. You know, you're completely wrung out, which is useless. You know, like to yeah. to re- use all the energy that you've got in your body for the day in those hours on the mat. I mean, it just just makes no sense. I think that's a carryover from my sword that is a misunderstanding, honestly. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the kind of one of the sadder results of what Sharat is doing in Mysore in that when we go to Mysore, you're on vacation. It is a yoga vacation. That's what it is. You go, you practice in the morning, you have a lazy breakfast. Maybe you go to chanting class. Maybe you don't. And you relax, you take a nap, you go to the pool, you go for a walk in the market, you go to bed early 
you know, you get up very early and you act like it's very hard to be there because you have to get up so early. That's all anyone ever talks about. And then you go and you do your practice again. And Sherat has said very clearly in my presence a couple of times that he doesn't expect us to do that at home. And he doesn't expect us to require that of our students because we have to, at home, we have to live our lives. When we're in Mysore, yeah, you got nothing else to do. Leave it on your mat. That's why you're there. Mm. But when we go home, you know, we have to find this sustainable balance of, of effort towards asana as well as effort towards all of the things that make us householders, the practice is supposed to be for the householder. And I think there is a disconnect between many of the teachers coming out of Mysore who they get up early, they do their practice at like four in the morning, and then they teach for a few hours, and then they have the rest of the day off. And they rest and they communicate with their students as if they're in Mysore, not as if they're parents who are up half the night with a sick child and folks who are going to work for nine hour work days and people who are, you know, rushing over to their parents' house after work to help them mm-hmm. with one of their, you know, people who have all of these greater responsibilities um, are being taught by what feels like legions of teachers coming out of Mysore who are like, you get up early every day and you sacrifice what you have to sacrifice and you you leave it on your mat. And Sharada specifically yeah. said that we're not su- expected to do that. I think there's mixed messages there. Um, yeah. I think it could be interpreted a, lot, a number of ways, but you talk a lot about... Um, yeah, this kind of a sense of manipulation that, that there's a, there's a there's a kind of power dynamic where the teacher has this control over the person's practice, right? And they decide yeah. how how and and you talk a lot about that. How much you're going to do, right? Like you'll stop there, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't bind in that, right? And, and also, um, I'll talk a bit about that maybe, and also uh, the weight stuff, the food and restrictive diet, which you mentioned before, and which is obviously something I've posted on as well. The fact that um. It does tend to help if you the, the thinner you get in, in the ashtanga, which is unfortunate because it feeds into eating issues that might already be there, uh, with myself included in, in historically. And um, so, yeah, so you, you tend to, there's a lot about this um, asceticism in, in terms of one's lifestyle, but also in terms of denying oneself food as well, um, which is really unfortunate. And then it comes within this teacher kind of enforcing those boundaries, saying, well, you can't bind, you can't do this, you know, like, and even, you know, like, yeah, even telling, I mean, there used to be that whole stuff around, um, you know, too many japatis in Mysore itself. Yeah, so it was enforced. It was, yeah, yeah, it was enforced there. I probably, maybe that stopped now <laughs> in this current age. I don't know. <laughs> I hope so, but I don't know. <laughs> Shirat's, Shirat's kind of got woke and he's like, yeah, <laughs> I can't, you know, we can't say that anymore. It triggers people's eating issues, you know, you can't say that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I, I think you were saying before about how sometimes you think people perceive you to be post-Ashtanga. And yeah. I, I have had my account referred to as an Ashtanga recovery account. And yeah. I, I yeah. don't I don't mean it that way. I mean I I mm. I love I love the system as I was taught it. I I love the idea of having someone you trust who will give you boundaries that you learn to 
push against them and pull back from them and recognize why they're valuable when you didn't previously. I love the idea of the series and more or less um, accomplishing a posture before moving on from that. I think uh, the patience and perseverance that that approach to the method um, teaches over the long term is it has been incredibly valuable for me. So I think for a lot of people, certainly not everybody, but for a lot of people that has a lot of value. Um, that, that, that also, sorry to interject, that also um, suggests a kind of teacher who's more than just an asset teacher, you know, yeah. who's giving you those saying, yeah. stop. I mean, I've never, to be honest, I've never, if I'm brutally honest, I've never had the confidence to do that. I never thought that it's my role to give, to, to take responsibility for someone else's practice, you know? Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's what I put out there now is like, you come, you do as you want to. I can say, well, look, you know, in this kind of tone, look, you know, what you're doing at this level is that might cause you problems further down the line, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like you know, but I'm never going to go stop there. You know, I'm never going to say that. And I'm never going to say, yeah. well, you know, I, I, I'm not teaching anything other than asthma, for God's sakes. You know, like I, I don't know anything about people's emotional, internal states, their energetic yeah. states, meaning like the karma that we will have in terms of historical and genetic traumas, you know, mm-hmm. like for God's sakes, like, I mean, I think we need to get over ourselves at a certain point maybe and say yeah. that the teacher is, like, for me, the teacher has never been an emo- like, I don't know. I've never really been an emotional guide per se as much. I mean, a stability, a person that's there every day who I can, you know, who I draw comfort in to that capacity, right? Like they're there as a stable point in my life. Right? And that's mm-hmm. been great. Right? But I don't know, I wouldn't ask them in terms of relationship issues or, you know, like, <laughs> or do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, but the way yeah. you, I mean, and again, I'm in a way, like as I always do, I play devil's advocate with this, but the, the way that you've talked about Kino and Tim, and, and they are more than just a, a teacher that they're actually stopping you and giving you boundaries, which, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But Kino and Tim were, um, from the early days, they, uh, were also kind of grooming me as their assistant and taking um, for granted that I would be teaching one day. So when I was stopped, I was, Sherat is a different story, of course. Sherat, you stop and you stop and you don't really get to ask questions about it. You know, Um, you definitely wouldn't ask questions about that, no. Oh, oh, I I did. (laughs) Did you? Did you? I am that annoying person. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, and I think I really benefited from that in my relationship with Sherat because I think he gave... Um, never, never very much, of course, but it was more when I was assisting and he would stop somebody. I, I didn't shy away from saying, you know, uh, why, why are you letting them go when they do it like that? Oh, right, okay, stopping yeah. them when mm. they do it like that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't ask a lot about myself. That's, that's right. Okay. Right, line, okay. Right? And what did you, right. Yeah. And what did he say about that? Um, he always brought it back to the individual, you know, to say like that if somebody he if there are two students who are doing the exact same thing and one was stopped and one wasn't, it was because one was at the limit of their potential at this time and the other was not. Basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which, you know, which I yeah. think is, is very reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. think an important distinction that many of us 
didn't necessarily take away from our experience in Mysore. It was this like black and white, you, you, you bind the hands and you're good. And, and I don't know if it, it was a surprise to me at the time, <laughs> maybe it shouldn't have been, but sure, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Um, totally, but, totally. And also, but, and also, you can see clearly when you're standing on the sidelines in the assistant position as you were, as, and I, as I was, you know, the kind of demonstrative ego that's, that's coming in many practices. I mean, I remember seeing him and there's one particular person I can think of and the sine qua non of, of yoga practitioners, like an incredible practitioner. There's he coming to me every practice. I'll tell this little silly anecdote because it's funny. And he, every practice he would say to me, well, I don't understand you doing the advanced series, he or she. And um, why is Shurad stopping me? Like, you know, like I can do the, and, the, and it was like, and you know, it's true that he could do that perfectly. Every posture was perfect. And every day he was getting stopped at the same place. And he could practice another whole series on from this. And he was getting stopped. And it's like, wait a minute. And there was this, you know, because, you know, there, there was this such a, a, a kind of level of prowess that was there, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. it does take it. It definitely, there are other things taken, taken apart from whether you can actually physically accomplish a posture or not, you know? Yeah, I I made that joke about myself when I started third with Sharat that I joked that it was he was just throwing me a bone. You know, I was barely hanging on through the end of intermediate, but like, you know, I kept showing up and I kept doing it and I kept making terrible jokes <laughs> every time he would backbend me, you know, and so for what for whatever reason that, you know, your personality he does take into account you know yeah, how he for sure, treats you for sure, yeah. which is amazing when there are so many of us that he's able to mm, do that yeah absolutely um, yeah and this is a, yeah and this is a nice uh, i think thing to to have have on record as well you know because as you can see uh, listeners that you know both of us have had really positive experiences you know on in my soul, right? Um, yeah. But I've, I've also, I, you know, I mean, to, to again, to, to to be contrary, I've also had the experience as an assistant, to, um, which was definitely a time when I felt like I might be moving away from from a subservience to my soul when I'm going over and I've been told to back bend someone and he's uh, he's catching, you know, and I'm looking at a stiff guy who's barely struggling with these back bends and, and, and he's, and I've got one in corner, the guy's saying to me, Oh my God. And the other one, Shrat's saying he's catching. And, and I'm like, well, yeah. you know, you signed your paper, like, you know, you made your, you know, I'm not going to go. Yeah. No, no, Shrat. Like, I was like, well, okay, like you're catching. <laughs> like, yeah. And I'm yeah, going to be right. the messenger. And I'm going to, I'm going to be the messenger of this. And at a certain point, you know, like I just thought, okay, well, this is what I'm down for right now. But, you know, like, I'm going to re-sign up for this? Probably not, you know. <laughs> you yeah. know? No. What I can do, for, uh, what I might have to do for myself is one thing, but when I'm having to kind of inflict this on someone else, it's like, well, you know, this is, um, you know, I'm not. And particularly the, catch, yeah. particularly the catching thing was where I really drew the line and thought this is just silliness. And that's that really emotionally very difficult as the assistant. Mm when you're told that someone can do something and you can see on their face that they are not confident that they can do the thing. Um, but or even I, when they're I, going, oh, God. Oh, and you can like, you know, I can remember one guy as well. And he's like, oh, God. And you think, well, that's what the hell? I mean, you know, like, 
we didn't start to come here and do for you know that yoga isn't meant it's not meant to re-traumatize us for god's sakes so I don't I don't want to get too down the rabbit hole of discussing um, Schrott's method of teaching um, because it's it's I'm sure it's changed so much in the five or six years since I've been there. So it feels a little unfair to say this is what Sherrod is like. But I frequently didn't do what he told me to do as the assistant. I got to the point where I was just like, you know, as the practitioner, I hate it when an assistant I don't know comes up and says, Sherat says, you're catching, you're going to catch. Because for me, catching was like, yeah, it could happen, but it was very, very scary. And mm. I, it was easy to force it physically. You know, you could do it to me, but my experience of it was very dubious. So as the assistant you know, Shrott would say they're catching and I would ask them if they were catching and then we would go in for the catch. And if it didn't happen, it didn't happen. And I would just shrug and and walk away. And he never responded badly. Mm. Much like in my practice, there were a handful of times where he said, you know, do this or, or you know, do it this way or do it again. And I just said, no, I can't. Not today. And he never responded badly. Right. And I think it's significant mm. that the level of deference and surrender, you know, tying back to what we were talking about earlier, we're so programmed to do exactly what we're told that if we never push back, we don't actually know what happens if mm. we don't do what we're told. And in my experience with Sherat, you know, he would give me these very clear guidelines. And if I strayed from them, you know, he was actually okay with it. And there, and I, I felt like there was this level of acceptance of like, yeah, okay, you're an adult. (laughs) Like, Hmm. I'm not actually there to, to just. I think, and also the interesting, yeah, the interesting thing, and as you mentioned in my story, is that different people really have different experiences. I mean, like, Shirat is really, really tough on some people. You know, mm-hmm. and other people really, you know, like they're very, very, very soft, you know. Yeah. And me, I think, was, me, I think it was a little bit in the middle. Um, but yeah, they're very different to different people. Some people really got a hard time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't think I was one of those people. I no. Think he, was always, he was always nice to me. <laughs> I mean, there still is this aspect. I mean, and, you know, again, we used to hear a lot, you know, no pain, no gain, you know, like, mm-hmm. but, you know, this kind of pushing through pain and, and you know, almost, being in pain was, I mean, I can remember the first time I kind of almost felt like a kind of, you have an injury, you can then have something to talk about. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I've, I've got this, I've got this injury, you know, <laughs> it's like a, a mark of your, you know, a badge of honor, you know, like, yeah. oh, you know, I've really, I've really tried really hard and I'm really committed to yeah. this. I'm really committed to this because not only have I, you know, like sacrificed my whole daily life to this, I'm, already, I'm also injured, you know. Like, oh, oh, not only I've are got you a, injured, <laughs> but you're practicing anyway. Yeah, and I'm yeah, and I'm really I'm really in pain, you know, but I'm going to practice yeah. anyway. Mm-hmm. But I mean, again, I think it's it's worth noting again that one thing I really love on your Instagram profile is the Venn diagrams and and the way that it's a Venn diagram, right? When you have the yes. circles, yeah. that's a Venn, uh-huh. right? Good, good. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah, and, and I remember a bit of math. And um, so you've got the Venn diagram, and and because it is like you know, there's no one like polarity, right? It's not like you know, like mice or or or, or vinyasa flow with you make up your own sequences and you know, like you whack on the music. You know, it's like. 
I still practice the sequence. I still have an order, inordinate respect for for my soul. I still um, I, I love looking. I still have reverence for looking at pictures of Shiraji. Um mm-hmm. I'm not sure I could look at Patabi Royce in the same way again, to be quite honest. <laughs> but never, you know, nevertheless, I mean, you know, like I still would say, like you know, I have respect for him as someone who did an inordinate amount of good in spreading the method, you know, although I have, yeah. you know, I have um, reservations and ambiguities in my feelings about him currently. Um, you know, so, you know, it is this Venn diagram where there is a, a black and white, you know, um, and yeah, what, what, do you, what do you say about that? I think we're all doing our best and, and it becomes very difficult to determine what our best is when we don't have a sounding board or we don't have feedback. So Sharat is in a uniquely difficult position where he doesn't have peers to um, help with decision-making. He has to decide everything that he's going to do pretty much by himself. And that's very difficult. And, you know, if he missteps, then um, it's entirely on him. And he has also these wild cultural differences from the majority of his student base that impact his choices that are then confusing to us. And, you know, that's really hard. And I think that carries down to like every level of teacher um, in that, you know, the more prominent of a teacher you are, the less of a peer base you have to help you know where to draw the line in terms of like what kind of teaching is functional, what's helpful to people, what's just kind of boosting your own ego, where do you draw the line between making money and getting exposure versus actually trying to teach people the method like that's one thing I loved about the Mysore style Ashtanga teaching is that you are actually teaching people the yoga instead of kind of presenting the yoga and letting people follow along um and all of what does that what does that teaching entail I mean because one could learn that from a a book or a, a cheat sheets you know so what is the when you're so, saying so te- that's what yeah. I think I think a book or a video, you know, you you're following along with it. You're not having an individual person look at your individual experience and say try to do, you know, try to approach it in this different way and see if that works better or if there's more value in that or or to have an a teacher say to you, I see that you are trying in this direction and it's not getting you the result you want. Do, do you want to try a different direction or do you want to, to keep trying this for longer? You know, I, like I said, I was a very verbal teacher. I, I, wanted to dialogue a great deal with the students about their emotional experience and why they were doing things the way they were doing them. Because I found so often that our intention behind the effort is 
more significant than the actual physical effort itself. It impacts it so heavily. Um, mm. And and in the long run, that's kind of why I stopped teaching, because I got so much pushback from more traditional teachers from the like, you do stop there. Like, this is the next posture, figure it out, practice, practice, use your bunda teachers that said, you know, I talk too much and I I interrupt the flow of their practice. And it's like, look, if you if you interrupt the flow of someone's practice for five minutes, one day a week, and it changes their emotional relationship to success and failure, Mm. then that interruption is worth it. If you just, if you let them keep doing the thing they're doing and keep failing and feeling terrible and keep having these successes and being elated, but because their ego is padded, then like you're not teaching them yoga. You're, you're, you're presenting them with shapes and letting them make shapes. But as a yoga teacher for me, and I don't really think this is in line with the Ashtanga method as most people perceive it. But for me, I wanted to teach yoga. I wanted to help people learn how their mind works and how their heart responds to what their mind is doing when their body is being challenged. Mm, and that's I, that's not a very that's not a very popular thought. Like that's not a popular way to approach Ashtanga. Yeah, and I wonder why really, because it sounds so reasonable when you're saying it. Um, and why wouldn't it be? Um, I, I suppose emotional dialogue dialoguing is um not really um the uh, domain of the I which I still see as a kind of yoga patriarchy really, which mm-hmm. you know is. I'm kind of scared of emotions, really. Yeah, <laughs> I'm becoming too emotional. I don't there's know. There's a level um, of empathy of actually, of actually having, yeah, of actually having to, as a teacher, actually having to come down your pedestal and actually engage yeah. and emote yeah, and exactly. emote with the student. It's frightening. Yeah. It's like it's easy to yeah. be a teacher. It's like oh, I go to my store and I've got my authority and mm-hmm. I have to be and I'm other than you and I'm essentially an authority and and it's not a democracy here and you're over there and there's a big you know a big divide between us you know and rather than i'm a person you're a person and i also have advanced serious practice but i also get afraid get depressed get anxious Mm -hmm. you know have bad you know like and I'm exactly the same as you, for God's sake. You know, like, yeah, it's, but it's difficult think... because because also you've got to be an inspiring figure. So it is, and I find the dichotomy a little bit there because I really try yeah. and be absolutely transparently honest. Like, this is me and I'm nothing different to you. But on the other hand, if you become too much like that, then the teacher's like, why, why don't we come to this person in the first place? Because I've nothing yeah. to aspire to. He's just like me, you know, like, you know, like he's just a ruined human being, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> neurotic and like, well, what, what can I get from this? If I'm coming to this person who's clearly telling me they're as neurotic as I am, well, what, you know, like, that's not an inspiration, yeah. you know? But, but on the other hand, it's like, I, 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 I kick back against hierarchy and, and, and the expert and the authority to quite a degree that I want it to be a very democratic process. But when you become too democratic as well, like the, what you were talking about, you're going around being this traveling teacher. And then there's like, you go to a student and they go, well, I've been taught by Keena. I've been taught by Tim. I've been taught by David. I've been taught by Richard. I've been taught by Sharat. Who do I listen to here? You know, and yeah. it's like, 
there's something about having a relationship, a consistent relationship with one person over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, which although I'd never want to say, well, you should just be my student because it will benefit you if you just pick your teacher. And I don't like this mentality either. But on the other hand, I think there's definitely be something in a consistent relationship with one person. Right? Well, it's the vulnerability. I feel like to be a good teacher, as well as to be a good student, you have to make yourself vulnerable to one another because you really can't truly trust someone who is not vulnerable to you. And as a student, the, the expectation in the system is that as a student, you make yourself vulnerable to your teacher, but your teacher is not expected to offer that back to mm. you. And that's what I really push back against because that's where the danger is. You know, you as a student, you are going to learn the most from your practice, I think, if you are vulnerable with your experience. And we don't, I think as human beings, we're not great at being honest with ourselves, honest about our motivations, honest about our emotional experience. And I think we're also Um, idealistic. We want, you know, like I yeah. came into it. Wanted, I wanted. I wanted a guru. I wanted an enlightened. I wanted an enlightened guru, right? Like we, we yeah. you know, we're quite romantic in our ideals. Right? You want. You want someone mm. who's omniscient. Basically, you want someone yeah. who, like who a, knows without you having to know yourself. I think that's part of this like magic that we talk about with Mysore and the the old guard that we we want to be able to go into this experience not knowing ourselves and have someone else be able to see us truly as we are and tell us who we are and that's not how it works we we have to discover for ourselves who we are and the practice i think just being consistent with the practice and going through the suffering and going through the elation of successes and failures in the practice will teach us who we are. But I also think that if someone has been doing the practice for 10, 15, 20 years, then they know how the practice taught themselves who they are. They know where they learn, if they're, you know, if they're trying to observe, um, which not everyone does. Sometimes the work is Mm -hmm. done and you don't really know how it happened, but you as a teacher can can recognize like, oh, I went through this difficult experience with the practice and this is it taught me this thing about myself and how I process difficulty or suffering or anxiety or, you know, discomfort or discontent. And you then have a tool to say to your student, if you are feeling this way, it could be because of X, Y, and Z. I had this experience at this point and I held myself back because I was holding on to, you know, X, Y, and Z. But if you as a teacher don't allow yourself to expose your student to your own growth and your own vulnerability, then I, you know, I think that's doing them a disservice. If you try to present yourself as a fully complete Mm. self-knowing finished practitioner up on this pedestal and and that's something your students are like 
I don't know, trying to become, but you're not really telling them how you did it. You're just saying like, keep going, which, you know, we have catchphrases for that. Like 99% practice. Yes, yes, theory, but like, I don't, for me, I can't, I can't get behind that. I feel like the more we are able to help each other and, you know. But also there's a, there's a wish for, for, for lack of transparency, right? It's just like a chef not wanting to expose your secrets. Like you just like, mm-hmm. you know, for many teachers, like, well, you know, let's not have a dialogue around this because I'm here and I, I don't, don't want you to be here as well. Cause there's this huge thing with, you know, like, well, I've got oh, to yeah. be the teacher. So I've got to be the most knowing and the best at asana and, you know, and the most, you know, like authority on my saw and how it's done. Because if I tell everyone else it, it's like, well, you know, like, is this, you know, like there'll be a Charlotte here and a Charlotte down the road. And, you know, so there's, yeah. there's definitely this kind of, you know, like protectiveness, protectionism yeah. around, yeah, around the teaching. Um, I was told, I was told I would, I would, this was by a loving student. I was told that I, I wouldn't be a successful teacher because I spent all of my time trying to prove to everyone that they didn't need me. Oh, God, that's, I, I, I always say that my job is to try and make myself redundant. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that, so it's like you can say that if you've got enough students, and then you kind of, yeah. you got five students, like, oh, God. <laughs> maybe well, you need me after all. <laughs> it didn't, didn't work, though. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe, well, it, did, um, maybe uh, it did work. <laughs> think it has worked what so just to finish off so what, what are you doing now i mean first of all to end do you do those drawings they're amazing and yeah you do yeah. them so so how do you learn to draw like that and do you, do you use a pre my wife says she uses some kind of computer program and draws on it i yeah Is that I, what you do? I draw i draw on my ipad yeah okay um, fucking amazing I, well, I used to work in a tattoo shop. I'm not a tattooer, but I worked in a shop and, and watched the process that they go through and, and observed a a lot of an apprenticeship for one of the tattoo um, apprentices. And that's kind of why I started drawing because I was like, if this clown can do it, so can I. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) I I do, I do it on an app, which is incredibly forgiving. You know, you can layer it and add layers on and take layers off and, and, change alter mistakes very easily you know you have your right. reference art right there on the page it's 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 the app is what makes it possible i had to draw some stuff on a piece of paper for halloween and it was not as elegant um, oh, really right so it's yeah. like it's the, 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 the program kind of helps you draw for sure just because it's okay. so forgiving because right. i can change things so easily yeah. it, it doesn't like damage the paper or leave a uh, a marker. Yeah, right, I can, yeah. It even has things where you can like kind of warp it, like stretch it, make it taller, or like make it wider. Yeah, right, right, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it still okay. takes a great deal of time, which yeah. is why and I the content, the content is fantastic. Yeah, the content yeah. I have in spades, but the the drawings themselves are what take forever. Um, but I have two small children, You've got kids. A, yeah, okay. Oh. A one-year-old and a three-year-old. Oh, I didn't know one. Oh, God. Right. Yeah. In a pandemic. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So, that's that's pretty much pretty much my life is, is right. with them and, and yeah. squeezing in practice when I can yeah. and, you know, trying to still spend time with my husband and keep in touch with my friends. And it's it's a lot. We also have a dog. He's wonderful. He's, <laughs> he's very exactly. active. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, so. I suppose thanks for coming on. You know, it's been a pleasure to chat to you.
you. And uh, as always, yeah. I always feel I get I get off the podcast and think, God, we should have talked more about that or that or that. But oh, I, I think it gives a, it gives a good like, overview of of maybe some of our thoughts and yeah, some of your thoughts. And well, keep yeah. on well, keep on doing the good work. On I love your account, and I'm looking forward to seeing more content when you've got the time. Thanks. Well, I'm sure I'll be a bad Ashtangi and and listen to your backlog of podcasts while I'm practicing. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. That's an excellent use of multitasking and time. That yeah. you know, yeah, absolutely do it. Um, all right. Well, thanks again for coming on. And I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. I thanks did. for having me. Yeah.